Hi, everybody. Welcome. The, the Q&A is, is a really, obviously, a big, big part of what we're doing here. So welcome back, everybody. Um, and for those of you who got bumped out last week because of this little oversight on Zoom's part, we had it um, scheduled open for 500 people, and then they zipped us down to 100 and didn't let us know. So um, I'm here in Colorado. Um, literally 74 degrees a, a couple of days ago, dropped to 10 degrees, 18 inches of snow one night, then it all melted. And if I could bring my camera and show you here, we got another foot where I am about, and Boulder has another 18 inches. So it's just crazy weather. So the spirit behind this hangout is, is really informal. This is a way for us to basically stay connected in this time of isolation. Um, and I was thinking here about what Thich Nhat Hanh um, not that long ago said, that the community, the Sangha, is, is the next Buddha. Um, and so this, this is really just a forum that we'll continue for as long as, who knows, you know, the coronavirus edition, as Andy put it. We'll see how long this lasts. But, you know, it's basically the idea just to hang in. It's also really fun and, and, and helpful for me. So I really enjoy this sort of thing. Um, I was reading a couple interesting articles this week on how they're predicting a second pandemic of mental issues after this mental problems um, and how isolation increases stress, anxiety, um, domestic violence, and even in the adult population, a really haunting statistic that adult seniors, seniors uh, who are left in isolation demonstrate a 45% increase in mortality. So isolation can literally kill. Um, it's very powerful, unfortunately. And so what I will be doing um, is a short set of comments. What happens is sometimes people send me really interesting, beautiful, provocative quotes. And I'm gonna share one from a, a, a wonderful Indian writer in a second. But I'm gonna talk for just a little bit. There were one or two questions that came in. I, I actually much prefer having the live Q&A with you all like we did last week. That was such a highlight for me where you pop up on the screen I finally get to see you, it, it just, I think it makes it so much better. So that's gonna be the bulk of what we do. Um, but with that said, some people do want a little bit of, of kind of so-called teaching. And so I will say a couple of things here, but all the while um, kind of referring you, there, there are other sources where I'm going into this stuff in tremendous detail. So I'm not here to, this is not my lemonade stand, I'm not trying to sell anything. But um, for people who are interested in a deep dive, we just started in Boulder, a course this Tuesday for 10 weeks, um, a, a class on the Bardos, the Tibetan teachings on transition periods basically, which, which have just tremendous applicability and explanatory power in terms of what's going on. So for those of you who really want a deep dive, a rigorous deep dive conjoined with just a, an amazing battery of progressive meditation practices, just go to the Boulder Shambhala website and that registration is still available. All the classes will be recorded. You get to hear them over again, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I did want to start, I want to give you in each session, as long as we continue, <coughs> excuse me, I want to offer in each session one, you know, what I'm playfully calling now emergency meditation or emergency contemplation. And I gave uh, the first one last week, so we're going to start with that. And this is really um, a kind of a twofer practice. It's, it's a meditation to 
ventilate contracted situations. Um, and this notion of contraction, the narrative is, is an enormous narrative right now. And I wanna come back and say a little bit about it, but this is a one breath meditation that I was given by one of my main teachers, Kempo Rinpoche, Kempo Sultram Gyamso Rinpoche, an amazing meditation master. And he taught um, this one breath meditation, which we'll do again, and we'll do it really at the beginning of each session. And I'm gonna have some really, I think, lovely refinements of this practice because I, I find myself using this puppy a lot. Um, whenever I feel contraction, anxiety, irritation, pettiness, which you know happens like what, a thousand times a day, right? Um, I catch myself feeling that contraction and I kind of vaccinate against that with this one breath meditation. I've also find that it, it serves for me it doubly serves as a kind of a appreciation practice. Um, and by this, what I mean is that, you know, we, we are literally <clears throat> one breath away from death, right? Take one breath out, don't breathe in, and you're dead. And if you've ever been with someone when they die, um, I was holding my father literally in my arms when he died. And it's an incredibly powerful moment when in one instant they're breathing, they breathe out and then just silence. It's like, it was a stunningly powerful moment. Um, and so this practice serves as an appreciation practice that we have this extraordinary luxury, this elixir of life, this breath, um, that, that really we should in fact appreciate. It's part of what um, Ninger Rinpoche talks about at the end of every, each day, doing a little bit of reflection or appreciation, recollection of everything that you should be or could be grateful for. This has kind of increased meaning for me now with all the people that are dying in these ICUs on ventilators. I mean, literally where breath for them becomes a matter of life and death. So something that we take so for granted becomes so extremely precious when we actually realize what it is. So this meditation, what I call this emergency practice, <laughs> It's emergency because it's so applicable. You can do this anywhere, anytime. And so could not be simpler, but don't let the simplicity belie the profundity. In the um, advanced practices, they talk about short sessions repeated often. And in fact, Houston Smith, the, the beautiful, lovely um, scholar of uh, comparative religion, had a beautiful saying once he, when he said, the, the process of the path is to transform flashes of illumination into abiding light. That's really beautiful. Um, and so this idea of just open and breathe. So we'll do it together, literally for the duration of one inhalation and one exhalation, you simply bring your mindfulness, your awareness as fully as you can to the really the majesty of this thing that we take so for granted, okay? That's it. I got my meditation session in for today. <laughs> I, in my conversation, I had a wonderful conversation with a dear friend of mine, Ben Williams. He's a, a professor 
um, in Sanskrit and Hindu studies, a, a, a real um, master of Shaiva Tantra, Kashmir Shaivism, and I interviewed him yesterday for my Light Club site. And Ben said something that was really awesome. Um, we we're talking about the power of mantra, mantra, um, mantra, as he was, you know, corrected me with the accurate pronunciation, mantra. Uh, literally, the word means mind protection. And um, he talked about breath. This was so beautiful. He talked about breath as the mantra of the goddess. I mean, I, I thought that was just exquisite. And since then, uh, as I am prone to do, I thought about it. <laughs> I fall into these think holes, right? These endless think holes. And so I was reflecting on this and, and it's helpful here to remember that there are three forms of mantra recitation. The first form is audible mantra, um, Om Mani Padme Hum or whatever. You just, you whisper it or you say a very, very powerful practice. The second type of recitation is mental recitation, um, which is, and again, these are, in the, these are classic, they're in the tradition, which is where you, you recite it mentally. You don't have to say it out loud. But what Ben was alluding to was that the, in many ways, the fruitional recitation, quote unquote, is a formless or silent recitation. And I immediately thought of this beautiful line from Rumi where he said, silence is the language of God, all else is poor translation. Um, I just think that's so beautiful. And so what, what Ben and I then talked about is in the wisdom traditions, um, on average, 21,600 breaths a day. And so if we can conjoin this one breath meditation with the kind of added impetus, or I should say um, octane of the mantra of the goddess, then we actually have 21,600 opportunities every day to tune in, to, to really um, use the power of silence to ventilate this contraction narrative. Because it's amazing when I look at my own experience, and, and I'm really interested in, in this um, massive topic of contraction and how it is you can, you can look at the entire generation of our suffering, of samsara, of all our pain, um, really as an expression of this kind of uh, contraction uh, implosion trajectory. And here's another practice around this. So this is, this is um, the main practice I wanted to introduce today. And this is the following, and this is another one I use a ton. It's another emergency meditation slash contemplation. It works with both. Um, and the idea here is that whenever you feel the urge to complain, Ask yourself, what am I feeling right now that I just don't want to feel? This, this has been a lifesaver for me. What am I feeling right now that I just don't want to feel? And so when I touch into this, what I don't want to feel comes in an infinite variety of permutations, right? There's no shortage of stuff I don't want to feel. But if there's a common denominator or ingredient for me, and be curious to see how this works for you, I find contraction going on 
whether it's irritation, anger, impatience, I mean, annoyance, you name it, this vast palette that I can choose from to complain about. I have found this practice to be, first of all, tremendously revelatory and humbling. It's like, wow, I mean, look at, first of all, look how much I complain. And then look how often I'm contracting. And so I really invite you to work with this puppy. Whenever you feel the urge to complain, and right now, I mean, there's books, entire books, literally um, topics of which are culture of complaint. Um, whenever you feel the urge to complain, pause. That pause in itself is, that's bardo yoga, that's gap yoga, you're pausing. And then stay with the feeling in your body. Complaint is really an out-of-body experience. Complaint is an out-of-body experience. What happens when I look into this, and this is the investigation contemplation part, I feel something I don't wanna feel. I feel myself contracting. I don't wanna stay with that, it just doesn't feel good. Well, you know, the spiritual business is not about feeling good, it's about feeling real, getting real. And what we call unwanted experiences is part of being real. So stay in your body. Stay embodied. I notice that like, like when my body contracts, it's almost as if the subtle winds, everything just gets squirted, <laughs> squirted out of my body like a ketchup bottle, flies up to the top of my head, splatters in my head chakra, and then comes flying out of my mouth, right, as some gripey, complaining comment. And so what this does for me is, first of all, it makes me pause right there. That's huge. <clears throat> Bardo practice on the spot. Okay, I'm not feeling something. Oh, I'm about to say it. Don't go there. Stay with the feeling. Don't have an out-of-body experience. <clears throat> don't complain. Touch into what it is that you're, you don't want to be with. Stay with that. Stay with that. That doesn't create karma. Even if you're feeling really crappy, that does not create karma. It's the fruition of karma, but it doesn't create karma. And in fact, staying with that is the first part of purifying karma. Staying in the crucible of your body, that's the, the purification crucible. Just staying with that starts to purify it. Why? Because you're no longer reacting from it. You're no longer expressing yourself. You're actually taking ownership of this unwanted experience. And by staying in that fire, this is the other thing that I talked about beautiful, <clears throat> in a beautiful conversation yesterday with my friend Ben, <clears throat> stay in the fire of lived experience. It's like Suzuki Roshi says, beautiful statement in Zen Mind Beginner's Mind, you should be a good bonfire. Don't be a smoky fire. <clears throat> we, we like to smoke. So what we want to do is we want to cremate our experience as we live it. And that's easier said than done, because sometimes this experience is not something we want to be with. So I really invite you, these two emergency practices, one breath meditation, and then you feel the urge to complain, to complain, pause, bardo yoga, inquire, investigation, it's a form of vipassana, if you want names for all these things. This is a type of vipassana practice. And then ask yourself, really, what am I feeling right now that I just don't want to feel? Stay with that. We're going to say quite a bit more about this because this is a pretty big deal. So here's the quote that somebody sent me uh, <clears throat> from Anandati Roy. 
who wrote this beautiful book called The God of Small Things. This is a really beautiful quotation. So this is what, what she says. It's a virus, yes, in and of itself, it holds no moral brief, but it is definitely more than a virus. It has made the mighty kneel and brought the world to a halt like nothing else could. Our minds are still racing back and forth, longing for a return to normality, trying to stitch our future to our past and refusing to acknowledge the rupture Paren, that's what a bardo is, rupture. Back to her. But the rupture exists. And in the midst of this terrible despair, it offers us a chance to rethink the doomsday machine we have built for ourselves. Nothing could be worse than a return to normality. Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew, this one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our dead banks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. I, I just, I was blown away by this thing. And I want to just say one or two things. At the end, what really stood out for me was when she was talking about walking through lightly with little luggage. It's a key Bardo instruction, you know, Bardo teachings. We're in a Bardo. That's why the Bardo teachings are so applicable now. A key Bardo instruction is you don't want to go through the Bardos with a lot of luggage holding you back. It's like one of my favorite authors, James Joyce, famously said, history is a nightmare from which I am trying to awake. So in this case, history is, in fact, luggage it's a luggage problem it's dead weight and so the invitation here is i hear um anandati roy um, talking about is really taking a close look you know the past no longer exists let it go let it die die to what is dead and this in fact our inability to do that is what i talk about is ungraceful exit when we die ungracefully, it, dying ungracefully is, is a luggage issue. Our baggage is holding us back. And so again, don't drag, this is beautiful, don't drag the carcasses of your prejudice and hatred, your avarice, your dead banks, your dead ideas, your dead rivers and smoky skies. That to me is one of the great opportunities of what's happening with this virus. Using this narrative opportunity into obstacle is don't return to normality. Normality isn't working, right? Allow this rupture, this rip in the fabric of our culture, our society, our economics, our politics, our politics, everything. I mean, short of a meteor hitting this earth, what, when else do we have this kind of unbelievable opportunity? And so the way I'm approaching all this is really as a way to look at my luggage rack 
to look at all the stuff that I bring to what's happening and to lighten up. I think this is a, 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 an inner rendering or another rendering of this idea of enlightenment, release the load. <laughs> I thought of this great song, George Strait. <clears throat> I'm sure you've, you've heard this verse. This is just fantastic, where he's, he sings, you don't bring nothing with you here and you can't take nothing back. I ain't never seen a hearse with a luggage rack. So you can't take it with you. You might as well leave it before it holds you back. In, in fact, my friend Ella Wallace writes beautifully. This is a really interesting thing to look at right now. At the moment of death, of what value is your house, your car, your possessions, all these little things that you so savor in life, of what value are these things at the moment of death? Zip. And then Al goes on to say that is precisely their value right now. And so if we spend our lives acquiring, gathering, which of course is what we do, we're just filling up our luggage rack. And then that's what creates an ungraceful exit. So when we die, central teaching for a graceful exit, lighten up. You want to go into the bardos with the lightest possible mind, a featherweight mind. And I'll say more about this in, the, in some of the up, upcoming um, sessions, just for our opening comments. Many of the masters say, um, and this is a beautiful um, kind of conflation of terms and ideas here, is that the lightest mind is the mind of bodhicitta, the mind of kindness, compassion, and love. Um, and so I'll come back to this a little bit later, but I wanted to just ping this out to you um, because I, I thought this quotation from hers was just spot on. And so I'm going to now transition. I talked a little bit more than I wanted, but hey, what a surprise is that, huh? <laughs> Those of you who know me, <clears throat> well, that's my near enemy. So I wanted to read, I had one question that was piped in. Um, I prefer to have the questions live from you all because then I get to see you. But I do want to honor, if I can get my other computer, the one question that did come in. And then um, turn it over to you. So start thinking about what you want to talk about. And again, like last session, it's not just q and There's so much wisdom here. You know, we got, what, 210 people listening. There is so much collective wisdom in this group. So it's also offerings, ideas, practices, things that, that you want to share with the group that is very much the charter. It's not, I'm the facilitator here. But here's an interesting question that is worth talking about that came in. Do you see any way that we as individual folks can contribute towards this growing social compassion that we are witnessing right now and to keep it going for our future culture? I'm looking for small steps that each of us can follow to keep this energy going. Sure. Great question. Great comment. So, you know, first of all, um, society is composed of individuals, right? So what I recommend is it's not just fear that's contagious. Um, I'm talking quite a bit in these bigger courses on contagion principle, virus principle. Kindness is also contagious. Compassion and love are contagious. So cultivate that within yourself and spread that to others. Every smile that right now a little bit hard with all our masks, but even online, 
Um, every smile is an offering um, that can affect, quote unquote, infect others. Um, every tip that you give at the restaurant, I mean, the applications here are legion. Talk about, um, you know, the small God, the, the God of small things. Here's the God of small things, that, that anytime you make these tiny, seemingly inconsequential gestures, they're not at all inconsequential. They absolutely positively add up. And in this idea of short sessions repeated often, here you go. Short session, offer a smile. Short session, offer a phone call for someone you think might be lonely. Short session, wave to your male person when they walk by. I mean, there are countless ways that we can squeeze out, not our neurosis and our fear, but squeeze out the goodness that's within us. Um, every time we put someone in front of us, before us, that's a short session repeated often that then adds up. A little bit more um, kind of metaphysically here, and I'm just gonna say a tiny bit about this, just to show you how far and how deep this goes. Every act you make, every thought, every word, every deed, actually has an imprint on the fabric of reality. And this may seem like a wildly metaphysical proclamation, but it's metaphysical in the truest sense of the word. Because in other words, when we often feel ineffectual, impotent against a massive monolithic reality made of solid matter, it's because in fact we impute that world to be such. Oh, what can my thinking, what can I possibly do? Well, what these great wisdom teachings have to say is that the world is not made of matter. Um, seeing the world in a material way is based on a very limited bandwidth of relationship to reality itself. The world is not made of matter. Trust me on this. I don't care what the scientists say. The world is made of this ineffable thing. You know, we can't really put a, a, a name to it. The tradition sometimes talk about it as emptiness. I like to think of it just for a little bit more applicably as the world is made of heart, mind, spirit, or as Mingyu Rinpoche says, the world is made of love. It's not made of matter. And so if you conjoin this classic perennial wisdom teaching with something as provocative and a little bit controversial as, as Rupert Sheldrake's work on morphogenetic fields, it's really interesting what he and then people like Ken Wilber and other um, thinkers um, really assert that whenever we say, think, or do something, it actually creates a kind of creode, an, imp an imprint into the very fabric of reality itself. And therefore, whether you know it or not, everything you think, say, or do actually has an imprint. It does have an effect on the material world. Um, and so really, with every thought that you think, talk about short session repeated often, with every word that you say, you actually have a much greater impact than you can possibly imagine. And if you want to get a deeper exploration of this, read, read Sheldrake's books, and also, I, want, I try to ping references out so I'm not just drawing all this out of thin air. Um, Ken Wilber's uh, Integral Spirituality book, the last couple of chapters on, on integral post-metaphysics, <laughs> he talks really beautifully about how it is that um, these types of ways of thinking itself actually changes the structure of reality. It's not just rhetoric. And when we change our understanding of the nature of reality, realizing that it's not made of matter, that is made of the same stuff that I'm made of, then we realize our, our 
thoughts, words, and deeds are not ineffectual. And, and this has tremendous applicability, by the way. If someone you know is loving, that you love is dying in an ICU unit right now and you can't reach them and you feel so utterly helpless, well, you may not be able to reach them in a physical domain, but if you have a deep understanding and appreciation, and most importantly, an experience of this, the farther down the rabbit hole you go, the more collective the experience becomes. And so you can actually reach underneath the pane of glass in the ICU from anywhere in the world. And there's a lot of data that supports this and have profound impact on these subtle dimensions of mind that are not subject to the limitations of, of the metrics of what we know of space and time. And so this is a bit metaphysical. Um, I'm probably gonna stop here because otherwise it'll just gobble up the whole time. But I think this is so important because not only can it help us with the situation now, but it can really help you help others when they're dying and even after their death. Because death may be the end of a body, it is not the end of a relationship. And that relationship, doesn't matter what the scientists say, it's such a silly way of looking at the world, that relationship continues. And your ability to affect and benefit someone, not only behind a pane of glass, but even after they died, is a lot more than you could even imagine. So enough on that, that's the kind of stuff we explore in the deeper dives. And I, I apologize a little bit because I ran longer than I thought, but I got a little bit excited. So open it up to you all, questions, comments, offerings. This is the part that I actually enjoy the most. So please. Great. Okay, first question is gonna come from Katie Ruth. Katie, you have the audio. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Andrew. Such a pleasure to be here with everyone. Hi. Hello. It's so great. I can't tell you, like I said last week, when I actually get to see people, it's mm -hmm. so fantastic because usually I've just got little scribbles here and then some voice. When I get to see you guys, it really makes me happy. So mm -hmm. cool. Fire away. Likewise. Um, so I have a, a dream and sleep yoga question. So um, what I've noticed is that sometimes I find myself in, in a dream and I'm lucid. And I'd like to go to the formless ground of reality. And so I'll use certain techniques like I'll close my eyes or I'll do a drop, like dropping down a dark stairwell or jumping off of something can sometimes drop me. But what will happen sometimes is I'll, um, I'll start to like morph in form and my body will start to kind of make these weird, unusual positions. And um, sometimes getting from that all the way down is, it, I, I won't be able to do that. So I'm curious if you have any tips for yeah, sure do. Position between those two places. Yeah, that's awesome. Fantastic. I, I mean, I just want to burst out in song and dance because, first of all, um, good for you for even, even being able to do what you're doing and ask the question. And it's also, I don't know if you came up with this on your own, but this is, this is one of the main ways that I work to go from the partial lucidity of the dream state to the full lucidity of deep formless sleep. I do exactly what you say. Um, and this is, so there's several ways to enter formless dimensions in the lucid dream 
and then perhaps even more importantly during the day. So I'll, I'll ping on both of those. In terms of what you're doing, what's actually, um, what in fact you can do is um, close your eyes in the dream. So when you're having a lucid dream, it's super interesting to actually close your dream eyes. Um, one of three things will happen. You'll either wake yourself back up because closing your dream eyes tends to stop rapid eye movement, REM. REM is what really kind of defines the dream state. It wakes you up. The second thing that happens is you just close your dream eyes and everything's just black like it is during the day. The third thing that happens is what we want is you can start an invitation to these more formless dimensions because the mind is no longer being pulled out towards even the dream imagery. And so what I do with these is I, I do three things. I close my dream eyes. I actually hold my dream breath. And there's so much to say here is such an intimate connection between um, respiration, whether it occurs in the dream or whether it occurs in the waking state. And there are actually some really sophisticated inner tantric meditations, kum, um, kumbhaka in the Hindu tradition, chandali in the Buddhist tradition, where you literally work with holding the breath as a way to stop the mind. So you close your eyes, you hold your dream breath, very interesting what happens because that can also hold your physical breath. And then what I do is exactly what you said. I, I just plunge through whatever dream ground I'm in. And what you say is exactly what happens to me. There's this kind of like comical, semi-tragic Czech Texas chainsaw massacre where my arms tend, a dream arms tend to fly apart. I'm literally like falling apart. It's such a hoot. <laughs> and so close my eyes, hold my breath and plunge. Why you want to do that from an inner yogic point of view is because the bindus, this again, for those of you who aren't interested in this, just hang with me for just a second. The bindus when you're dreaming are in your throat center. Consciousness is here. When you drop into the deep dreamless state, they go to the heart center. And this is why when we fall asleep, we fall apart, it feels like a falling. So when you fall into the dream state, you're still at a halfway house. You're still partially formed, partially deformed. You're not fully formless. That's what we know as a dream. To become fully formless, you got to get to here. And so you want to enter, what happens is you're going to be entering the central channel when you do that. You're literally going to be um, disforming as you fall down into the central heart center. So that's one thing. The next thing, and, and then I'll maybe leave it at this because it's such an esoteric topic, but I love it. The most important thing to really do this is become familiar with four dimensions of your mind during the day. What is found now is found then, Kabir. What is not found now is not found then. So practice more formless meditations. Um, Mahamudra, Dzogchen, Prajnaparamita, whatever tradition you're in, open awareness meditations, whatever practices bring about levels of formless awareness during the day, that's what greases the skids for recognition at night. And so if you do that daily practice, that will super help you. If you can join it with these little tips for the actual lucidity um, transition, halfway house transition, you'll be able to do it. Um, and uh, I mean, there's some references. You, uh, if you, again, uh, the work of Robert Wagner, um, mm -hmm. his book, he writes about this sort of thing. <clears throat> when I interviewed him, we talked about this sort of thing. It's not uncommon for deeper divers in the world of the nocturnal meditations, but Maybe I'll leave it at that for now. Is that helpful? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank cool. you so much.
take the dive and let me know, okay? Okay. <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, the next question will come from Barry. So Barry, giving Barry, you have the audio. This is Thank Barry you. Massachusetts. Oh, it's my friend Barry Sponder. Yeah, good afternoon. I'm so inspired by your your answer. I, uh, I, I have a comment and a short question. My okay. comment uh, relates to uh, when you go out at night, you, you often talk about staying away from the lights and, and you know embracing the night. And the other night we were driving when it was a full moon, and my wife reminded me that there's a stupa on the moon. I don't know if, if uh, everyone knows that. That's probably, I'm probably the last one to know it, but there's a stupa on the moon. And actually, if you, as you're out at night, you know, and you're looking for some inspiration, you can look at the moon and you know that there's, there's a relic of the Buddha and Guru Rinpoche and everything. And to me, that's just a beautiful, warm feeling, you know, like it's an embrace of the night that, especially in these times when people are so scared and, you know, looking for direction. I mean, you can look at the moon and just, you know, feel that warmth coming right from there. That's beautiful. In fact, Barry, what I think that also invites, if I might interject, this is what I often do, uh, again, literally. It's like I talk about so often, you know, when our mind gets small, our problems get big. When the mind gets big, our problems get small. And so um, I highly recommend, to whatever extent you can, whenever you're feeling claustrophobic, contracted, suffering, literally step outside, look into the, either the daytime sky or I find it more compelling actually to look into the absolute infinitude of the nighttime sky and just contemplate the utter literal astronomical dimensions of what you're looking at. It almost immediately decentralizes myself. It almost immediately expands my scope of who I am and therefore immediately puts in perspective and contextualizes what I'm feeling is a bit of hardship. So, Try it and see if it works for you. I, I do this a lot. But anyway, please continue, Barry, if you had a, a question after that. Yeah, actually, uh, two small ones. One is, what's the difference between the course that you're doing on the Bardos now and the one that's on tricycle? Yeah, good question, my friend. The tricycle course um, is the one I, I finished last week. It's, it's a, kind of a quick emergency type course to help people work with the situation. The 10-week course that I just started is 10 times more than that. Um, not, not in any way to dismiss the tricycle course. I could only do so much in three sessions. But the Boulder course is at least a 20-hour course, at least, at least 10 weeks, where we have the chance to, to go into quite a bit more depth. Quite a, The practices that we offer are, are, are um, multitudinous. There's a, many more practices and just an opportunity to go much more deeper, so much more deeply. So there are some overlaps because I'm trying to just offer some of these core teachings, but the Boulder class is um, much, much deeper exploration, okay? And the other question is, could you give us the, the name of the author of that quote? Arundhati Roy, um, A-U-R, oh, let me see, A-R-U-N-D-H-A-T-I, Roy, R-O-Y, the author of The God of Small Things. Thank you. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful quote. Thanks, Barry. Nice to see you, my friend. Nice to see you. Okay, um, next question is coming from Deb Howard. Deb, you have the audio. Hi, Andrew. Um, 
I actually was able to ask you a question last week, and so I just wanted to give you some feedback and talk about my oh, yeah. experience, yeah, if that's totally. okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I was feeling really overwhelmed thinking about suffering that's happening around the world, like in India and people that are in prison and things like that. And you suggested Tonglen practice. All right. Yeah. And so I just wanted to say I was able to join an online Tonglen practice that was being led the next oh, day. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I found it so helpful. So yeah. I just really want to say thank you. And um, just tell you a little bit about it. Um, like one of the things you said that was really really helpful was i felt like um the part where you said take it in but don't give it a place to land like there isn't any place for it to land and i realized that i was breathing it all in right. and i wasn't breathing it out like i wasn't breathing anything out and it was just like stuck and like you're saying contracted in there and so the lead meditation that i did started with kind of what you were just saying now about connecting with this big open sky mm -hmm. like visualizing a blue sky and and connecting with that openness and so starting there from a big space instead of this small little contracted me it was amazingly helpful um and then um so that was really good and also um the suffering was just like flowing through me it wasn't even really me i mean it was just really amazing what it was then kind of mysteriously transformed into this connection like i'm connected to people through the suffering and um, you know, that the truth of that, our suffering actually connects us in yep. compassion. It was really amazing. And then I also found doing it with a group really, really helpful because I just felt really supported by other people also doing it. Um, so I just wanted to throw right there because I feel like some people might think Tonglen is such a maybe advanced or you need a lot of experience to do it and i just found it so helpful so thank you so much for yeah thanks thanks that. for sharing that a couple comments um next week in fact it's on my list of emergency meditations we are going to do a one breath tong lin teaching um and so stay with me next week i'm going to come back to that because Anybody who breathes can do Tonglen. <laughs> it's, it's not an advanced practice. It may be advanced in terms of requiring a little bit of, of curiosity and maybe a, a touch bit of courage. But two things here, dear. One is the starting, you know, the first phase, the first of the four classic stages of Tonglen is in fact this complete opening. You know, you, you, it's called um, flashing absolute bodhicitta, which is basically a reminder before you start the other classic stages of breathing and inhaling it's a reminder that you are, in fact, like you said, you're not taking this in. That, if you do that, that's a mistake. By opening and just flashing this first open stage, what it does is it creates the proper view where um, it's the universe that's breathing in, not you. And so when you mix your mind with space and become the universe, then you, as the universe, you, quote unquote, can contain anything. And so we start with that as a reminder that, yes, it's not just me. Uh, first of all, there isn't one. You know, it's the universe that's breathing this in. It can contain this because that's who you really are. And then it's the universe that radiates out this love, kindness, goodness, and compassion. So Tong Lin, Tong Lin, when it comes to bardo situations, is, in fact, my dear friend Ken Wilbur, I asked him once, you know, what's your go-to practice around death? And he said, without batting an eye, and this is like, like the most intellectual, cerebral guy on the planet. I thought it was going to be some like tricky visualization thing or inner tantric thing. He said, Tong Lin. 
I thought that was incredibly beautiful, Tong Lin. It's my go-to practice. In addition, I mean, every session, every day when I start, after I do my morning liturgy, every session starts with Tong Lin. Um, and the other thing here, very briefly, is, you know, compassion. The word, you know, I'm, a, I'm an etymological word origin nerd, right? The word literally means compassion, literally means to suffer with. And so what we can use, so to speak, quote unquote, um, take, you know, take advantage of this suffering as a way to connect with others. And, and that is in fact what compassion does. It allows us to contact others at the level of the heart and then help us help, us help others. And so Tong Lin, briefly, in terms of like this metaphysical thing I was talking about earlier, it has more power than you can imagine. You might think it's just like this little thingy. What you do with your Tong Lin has more impact than you can imagine. Because again, the world is made of mind and heart. The world is not made of clunky matter. It's made of the same mind and heart that you're made of. And so when you send out this ripple through your intentionality and your practice, that ripple vibrates throughout the cosmos. Um, and by understanding the nature, and this is why it's helpful to understand the nature of reality, to kind of deconstruct this utterly fallacious, ridiculous way of looking at world in this concretized, reified, materialistic way. That is just such a sad way of looking at the world. We understand the nature of reality so that we can better kind of imbue our inherent power to affect and transform that reality. And Tong Lin is one beautiful way to do that. So thank you for that contribution, that's awesome. So stay tuned, next week we're gonna do a one breath, so-called emergency Tong Lin practice, okay? Awesome, thank you so much. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, the next question is from Robert. Robert, you have the audio. You there, Robert? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. Hey, Robert. You hear me? Yeah. You have a, you have like a, you have a, you're bathed in radiant light. I'm, I'm looking at you. You're like this figure in, in the Bardo with all this light flowing around you. So that's pretty cool. Oh, okay. Nice. <laughs> Fire away, my friend. My, my audio is a little weird, but I, I heard you. <laughs> okay. The light is streaming in. Yeah. You're, you're like, you're glowing. <clears throat> Oh, I know why, excuse me. No, it's, it's all good, it's all good, keep it. Okay, that should be better there. The, I had it on my, um, uh, on my speaker. Um, okay. Nice to see you, and um, sorry I missed you a lot. You were coming down to uh, Scottsdale. Uh, hope to meet up sometime in the future to attend one of your- um, Are you the golfer? Treats up in Sedona. Are you the golfer? Yeah. Oh, I'm meeting all these people. I've been hearing about I'm the golfer. Yep. We're going to have to go play TPC course when I'm down there next. Okay. <laughs> okay, Robert, what's on your mind, my friend? Yeah. Okay. So I have a question for you. I've continued to uh, maintain my office hours and clinic uh -huh. and seeing patients and um, obviously, the atmosphere has changed quite a bit, and so I've been, you know, working around trying to um, start my day before entering the clinic um, with my best foot forward and, and exploring some of the, the Medicine Buddha uh, practices. I was wondering if um, you have any experience with that or any advice on wanting to 
know, really bring that kind of warmth and energy and that sense of embodying that uh, practice before I go. Absolutely. As a healthcare professional, you know, I have a Menma Buddha Tanka, Medicine Buddha Tanka. Um, it's an incredibly powerful practice in, in Tibetan Tantric Vajrayana Buddhism. Um, and if you have a connection to it, uh, all I can say is just go for it. Um, Trunga Rinpoche has written beautifully and extensively on this topic, Robert. The, the practice itself is, it's, ah, this is interesting. It's, it's almost like Tonglen on steroids. It's, it's a way to cultivate this archetypal energy of healing that is within us. And so there's obviously, because it's an entire deity yoga, there's a, just a tremendous amount to talk about here, my friend. But I would simply encourage you, if, this, if I'm hearing you properly, that if you have a connection to this practice, especially if you've had the, the transmissions for it and you practice it, it's a beautifully power, powerful practice. Um, Robert Thurman, by the way, has his own lovely kind of uh, medicine Buddha, almost like emergency type practice that he um, talks about. And I think if you go to his website, you'll find some um, Menla um, sleep practices and Menla Buddha practices altogether. So I'm not sure where, where else you want me to run with this thing, Robert. So, um, I mean, I can just encourage you that whatever we can do, you know, starting the morning, like you're saying, with the right foot, you know, starting with the right foot forward is super important, in my opinion, because if we gather in the morning, we do our practice, we center within ourselves, we take care of ourselves, you know, it's like, it's like uh, they say in the airlines, you know, when the, air, when the oxygen masks drop, you put the mask on yourself first before you put it on others. It's a Hinayana approach, a narrow vehicle approach. But if we don't do that, then we have less power, I believe, to help others. First of all, we'll burn out. Um, and secondly, we'll get all caught up in our hopes and fears and our projections about what's happening instead of what's really happening. So I'm not quite sure where else you want me to run with this one, my friend. Is there some another direction or follow up on this or is that okay? Or did you dissolve into the Dharmakaya? <laughs> I think that's possible. I think, I think that's possible. If he comes back, we'll bring him back online, but he, his connection was a little spotty. So we sure. can open up the floor. Um, okay, next question will come from Sharon. And you have the audio now, Sharon. Hey, thank you. Hi, Andrew. Hi, did your three-day uh, series on tricycle. Oh, nice. Um, thank you. Brought me here. Um, I'm interested in learning techniques to deal with other people's anger. Mm -hmm. I, you know, when I get angry, I can take some deep breaths. I can walk away. But... Um, you know, like, for example, I have a 12-year-old daughter who is, um, you know, pre-teen hormonal. And oh, yeah. it, uh, there was a woman in the grocery store who just had a huge screaming fit. And I find that I, I either react with the explosion or I turn into a turtle. And I, I have not found a way to yeah. stay present. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Yeah, a couple things here. You know, one is an understanding of where the anger is coming from. Um, because, you know, and I, I think I talked about it in the Star Cycle course, I'm not sure. But if you really take a close look within yourself um, with these highly contractive energies like fear, panic, anger, 
they are among the most contractive and therefore reconstituting of all emotions. And this is really helpful to understand if you're at all working with death and dying situations or, I mean, we're in a death and dying situation right now, the whole planet is. And so what happens is when things fall apart, if people aren't armed with the right skill set, their default mechanism is regressive. Their default mechanism, and studies have shown this, is to, to work to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And one of the best ways to do that, and you can look into your own experience to see that this is in fact true, is in fact to get angry. Angry is a hot, anger is a highly reconstituting, solidifying emotion. I mean, when, you, when I feel anger and I feel fear, these are about the most solid energies I can feel. And so if you understand this, when people are dying and loved ones are, are losing it and unloading on you, or the dying person unloads on you, or you're in the supermarket and somebody is just losing it, you can have tremendous compassion for them because they're losing it because from them, they're falling apart. And for the, the only way they can think of getting it together is not go gracefully into that good night, but to contract and defense against it. And then they, what they do, they erupt. So that right away brings a sense of compassion, understanding, and empathy. Um, now for your side, so this is two ways to work with it. One is understanding others. The second is within yourself. And this is where these core teachings, and I did talk about this in the tricycle course, and we're going to spend a ton of time on this in the Boulder course, is the monumental importance of understanding the teachings on emptiness. Because um, for yourself, it's the same thing. So when the anger comes unloaded on you, I bet you any money, you know, especially if, if we kind of quiver, Feel within yourself what's happening. You're going to almost always find like, you're going to find that, that contagion kind of registering with you. And so the way to work with this, and this takes a little bit of practice. It's not going to happen right away simply because of the power of habituation. I mean, we're not habituated to openness. That's the definition of meditation. We're habituated to contraction. So you have to be patient with yourself. And so you understand that when you feel that, that's just your default. So then you have compassion towards yourself. Then what do you do? Well, lo and behold, you got several practices. You do a one breath meditation session and you sit there and go, okay, I'm just going to breathe into this. And then conjoin it with the complaint thing. I do not like the way this feels. This sucks. Stay with that, stay embodied, stay in your soma. And then if you do that, you will notice that that energy will naturally soften. It will self-liberate even biochemically within 90 seconds. 90 seconds is the shelf life, shelf life, biochemical shelf life for an emotional upheaval. So let it, you feel it, but you don't feed it. You establish a relationship to that. That's not easy because our usual strategy is one of no relationship, contraction, avoidance, distraction, drugs, you name it. So this is why, you know, at this level, these, these practices, this, these traditions are called warrior traditions because it takes some guts some courage to stay in these unwanted states. If you do that and you become more and more familiar with these open meditations, the practices that we introduced briefly in the tricycle course, and, and when those are stabilized, you will find, like I mentioned, I think I said this jingle, you will feel things more. You actually feel things more 
but they affect you less. They hurt you less because they don't have a place to land. You're not taking them like little neutrinos. They're passing right through you. And so, you know, that may seem like a lofty uh, kind of ideal, but it can inform your practice. It can help you inspire. It can inspire you to do these practices, these meditations, where this then becomes your direct experience. And then, you know, you become increasingly more and more invulnerable, invincible, not in a kind of a um, you know, reified, solid type of way, but you become invincible the way space becomes invincible. And so something along those lines, is that, is that a little bit helpful? Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. And it seems like as a, as a way to make that happen, um, at least especially, for example, with my daughter, the first step is to say, okay, stop. Let's both stop. Um, because I, I want to also help her learn how to deal with her anger yeah. as well. Um, obviously, I can't tell the woman in the grocery store to stop, but um, just finding a way to pause. That's part of yoga. Pause practice is part of yoga. It's so helpful because, you know, the narrative thing, you know, ego feeds on narrative immersion. Ego just can't wait for something to riff on. And so one of the things you can do is just pull the page out, rip the page out of that narrative by literally just stopping. The minute you do that, you're starting to change your relationship. Then you become a little bit more interested like we are invited to do. You, then you turn in, you go, what is this thing called anger? What is it really? What is it made of? Where do I feel it? You start to look very closely at that. You're going to deconstruct this thing called anger. You're going to take it down to what it really is, and then you're going to realize fundamentally it is utterly, completely workable. There's nothing inherently problematic with the energy that we call anger. What's problematic is all the narratives, the propancha that we talked about, all that stuff, the adventitious defilements that you throw on top of that sensation. That's the problem. And see, that's something you can control. That's something you can work with. Now, whether that happens right away or not, that depends on the strength of your, of your habitual patterns. And that's why we have to understand the power of habit, the power of karma. So that if we find ourselves losing it, we go, oh, geez, instead of beating ourselves up, we hold ourselves in the cradle of loving kindness. We do Tong Lin for ourselves. And we just say, wow, we even laugh at ourselves. Look how proficient I am in the art of contraction and reactivity and anger. I am so good at this. This is like freaking amazing. How did I get so good? I got so good because whether I know it or not, every time I feel that and I capitulate to it, I'm, I'm practicing it. I'm getting better at it. We're all really good at these vices, these, these uh, you know, seemingly negative states of mind because we practice them all the time. But if you take a really close look, and, and this is kind of what we're doing with the deeper dive, and this may seem like an outrageous proclamation, but it is absolutely true. There is no such thing as a negative state of mind. There is no such thing as a negative emotion. There is only inappropriate relationships to really charge energies and mind play. Um, and so my, like my friend Chris Wallace says, it's so beautiful. There is no darkness within. There is only light unseen. And so we're trying to be light through these really dark situations, which is fundamentally understanding that the light is always there. I talk a lot about near enemies. Well, this is an application of near friends. If you look very closely at these so-called untoward, unwanted states of mind, 
you will find a friend there. You will find light there. In, in the tantric traditions, you will find the deity there. That's how far it goes. I mean, if you look in, in Tibetan Buddhist terms, if you look very closely into the heart of anger, you will meet the deity of Chobya. So that's a little bit outside of where I want to go right now. But the whole idea is we have so much more power over these states than we think, informed by the view, the practices that support them, and the patience that then brings them into life. Something like that? Yes, that's very helpful. Thank you. Welcome. Great question. Great comment. Okay, uh, next question is coming from David Takahashi. And My friend David. Let's see. Okay, hey, David. Let me start my video. Hey, Andrew. Nice to so see you. So I'm riffing a little bit here. I hope it's okay. Um, I'm riffing on this idea of Tong Lin and your idea of the contraction and ventilation exercise. Okay. So you, um, when when this anger occurs in the supermarket and you can't control someone else's anger you take their contraction in. You can. And you give them the ventilation back. Absolutely, you can do that. And it just spot. breaks the, 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 the chain of karma right there. Absolutely right. And, and it is so unexpected. It's, yeah. it's an emergency vaccination. It's so powerful. You can do it with one breath. You can do it within an instant. And so absolutely, and, and again, I'll, I'll speak a little bit more about this next session when I talk a little bit more about emergency Tonglin, but um, you're absolutely spot on, David, for sure. Did David just disappear? Uh, it seems like that's possible, okay. yes. <laughs> um, no other... Okay. No, other, no other hands raised at the moment, but we do have a few writing questions. If you oh, like, yeah, yeah, you can, yeah, you can uh, read those off. That's great. Okay, so this question actually came from Facebook Live. Can you speak to the relationship between Tang Lin, unborn awareness, and the heart space? <laughs> yeah. So Tang Lin, unborn awareness, and the heart space. So. <clears throat> The unborn awareness component. So, so Tang Lin is composed of two principal um, ingredients, so to speak. <laughs> the first one is the one I mentioned briefly earlier, <clears throat> where the first of the four stages of Tang Lin, stage one, is where you flash. And, and for most people, it's the fake it part, because people usually go, I'm, I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to do here, but okay, I'll flash, whatever. Fundamentally, the invitation is to just open, open, reconnect, open. This is the unborn awareness part. This is connecting to absolute bodhicitta, to emptiness, to the just absolute level teachings. So then from that space, then one engages with relative bodhicitta, with the relative aspects of Tonglin, which is when you bring in, in these three stages on first, as, as you know, breathing in and out, um, more abstract, um, hot, dark, breathing out, cool, light. Then next phase, breathing in, very specific, uh, difficult situation, breathing out love and light towards that. And then the fourth stage last is doing it even bigger um, for the entire cosmos. And so um, 
again, I'm not sure where else I can go with that. The, the first part is about the unborn awareness part. It therefore informs, permeates, perfumes the remaining three parts. But if we just stay, the near enemy of just staying with that unborn awareness is it, it can be a little bit sterile. It can be a little bit um, um, aseptic. And so what happens with the remaining three phases of Tonglin is you, is you get dirty, so to speak. You, you, you come back in to the grit and grime of, of relative reality, and then you can join your, med your breathing with these more relative aspects. So I'm not sure without having the ability to ask this person a follow-up question if, if they wanted to unfold more on that, but that's what comes to mind around that one. Great. We seem poised on a ledge with the unknown, the uncertainty looming large. How can we embrace the uncertainty without contracting since part of the uncertainty could include possibilities for outcomes that might not look so pretty? We, uh, yeah, the first thing we do, you know, is, is we have just that understanding of potentiality. And that's why, you know, everything in Buddhism starts with right view. In the classic Eightfold Noble Path, the first of the Eightfold Factors to awakening is, in fact, right view, complete view. And so the first ingredient for this kind of transformation is, in fact, having a deeper understanding, the right view that there is opportunity here. Um, where is it? What are those opportunities? Um, armed with that, then we can start to tease apart more specifically, well, where, are, where do the opportunities actually lie here? So then that brings you into a study um, or could perhaps invite you into a study of things like Bardo teachings. So the Bardo teachings of Tibetan Buddhism are specifically designed just for this. Buddhism altogether has a huge skill set for what's happening. But the Bardo teachings are uniquely um, qualified for this because, and this is why, what's happening um, in the world right now is, is a, um, what I playfully, playfully, if there's anything playful now, I playfully refer to as reality concentrate. Everything is just so intense and concentrated now. All the, the harsh realities that are usually diluted, distracted by all these distractions are gone. That's what makes the situation so challenging for people. There is no way to escape. Well, that concentration is exactly the type of concentration that happens towards the end of life or death. If you've ever been around it, you know it's a really concentrated, intense time where reality is the good, the bad, and the ugly all get displayed and squeezed out in these really intensive situations. So the Bardo teachings, the way I've come to, to work with them over the years, they are designed just like the situation squeezes out these really challenging aspects of the human condition. It's as if to me, the Bardo teachings squeeze out the essence of the Dharma. In, in Tibetan, the word is nintig, the heart essence. And so very specifically, if you're interested in transforming obstacle into opportunity, I just really encourage uh, an exploration of these Bardo teachings because they are utterly applicable. They have so much explanatory power. I mean, we are in the Bardo of dying right now, culturally, socially. We are in the bardo of dying. When we start to come out and reconstitute and, and take rebirth into whatever's gonna happen next, which again, that's the uncertainty, who really knows? Are you comfortable hanging out in that space? Are you okay with the unknown? That's kind of like the bardo of the Dharma Tab, the second bardo, the middle one. 
the actual death bardo. And then there's what's called the bardo of becoming. How do you want to become? How do you want to change? How do you want to take rebirth, so to speak, after this virus is finished? And so maybe something along those lines, um, understand the power of the view, how incredibly helpful that is, and then supplement that with the teachings that are appropriate for this particular type of experience. And in my view, these, these, it's one reason I'm offering all this stuff right now, the Bardo teachings are just tremendously helpful. Um, so something like that. Thanks. Um, hands are going back up. So oh, my God. <laughs> the, uh, the next question is coming from Stephanie R. Stephanie, you have the audio. Okay. Stephanie! Hi. Hi, Andrew. I made it this nice time. To, you made it this time. Nice to see you, dear. Good to see you, too. Hi to Barry in Massachusetts, too. Um, so uh, what I notice, a woman who was speaking about anger, um, for me, I've had a range of emotions through all of this, and um, I'm not bad at recognizing what's happening inside of me. Uh, but there's also a battle with that recognition, something I, it's like, um, and basically what starts to happen is I go into anxiety and anxiety mode. And it's, it's a recognition of what's happening and how I would like to handle it or something. And then yet there's this, the regressive default yeah. of panic, right. fear, yeah. all of that and maybe uh, just not knowing if I'm capable or, or, or whatever that other thing is that's old, that I'm familiar with. And now I'm familiar with it as not necessarily being me, but the two of them coexist. What, what, what I'm aspiring and working on, working towards, and also this other thing. And the, the, the result, and I've experienced it throughout my life on and off in, in different ways that I notice it through all of, of this uncertainty is just enormous anxiety. And the first thing it, anxiety for me manifests is I lose my breath. I can't breathe. So when you come talk about, um, you know, the breath being the mantra of the goddess or, and, and all of this, it's like, I it's essentially I'm silenced in my ability to, manifest and so even when you talk about a one breath meditation um i uh it, it can take me minutes at times to accomplish that and it helps when i'm breathing i mean i know what it feels like when i'm connected and the breathing is free and open but honestly the level of anxiety and then and then the added thing that you mentioned uh, uh about um uh about how every thought and our feelings and all these things, how they are manifest in reality. And I, I, I believe that and I have experienced things like that. Uh, that also adds an added sense of pressure yep. for me. Yep. So uh, that which also increases my anxiety. So basically I am in and out of anxiety on this level and I'm aware of it, but I really don't I'm doing my best to just one one thing at a time take care of myself, but it, it's just it, sometimes it's just unmanageable. Yeah, it feels like so. I don't know if you have anything to say. Yeah, or totally. Offer. Yeah. First of all, thank you for sharing that, Stephanie. It's it's really um, you know, <sighs> offering. Yeah, it's courageous. You know, so a couple of things come to mind, my dear friend. One is, it, it's always a very interesting thing 
it's one of the near enemies of, of any, any type. Again, wherever you find light, you will find shadow. Um, and so one of the near enemies of anything that's offered, even these kind of antidotes, is that it can create certain metrics um, that, oh, you know, I, I, oh, I should be able to do this, oh, I should be able to, to do that. And, and what I often playfully say around this is don't, don't shoot on yourself. Stop shooting <laughs> on yourself, you know? We're, we're, we tend to be, not all of us, we tend to be rather quite hard on ourselves. And so the one breath meditation thing, in a very real way, Stephanie, is don't try to accomplish it because that in itself already sets a metric that, that you will then measure yourself against. And of course, you'll always come up short. So what I might recommend is two things. One is between the time when you feel you know, that the instruction to do the one breath meditation is given and you feel you can accomplish it. During that time, unless you're holding your breath during that period, you're breathing. It may be shallow, but you're still <laughs> breathing. So the invitation is just open to that. Just open to that. Even, even if the breath is this deep, mm -hmm. that's great. Give that breath a hug. That's where you are, right? Pema children, start where you are. So you can do a one breath meditation, even if it's that big. And even mm -hmm. if it's like, oh, oh, I think, okay, well, I should be doing this meditation where I'm fully present for my in-breath, I'm fully present for my out-breath. Uh, you know, that's where the view can actually trip you up. The invitation might be to just open, allow even those tiny little short breaths and, and be kind to yourself, Maitri, loving kindness. Second thing, Stephanie, is and this, I'd be very interesting to see how this might work for you, is be really curious. You know, people, a lot of times people ask me, like, what do you study? Who are you? You know, I, I used to say, well, I'm a Buddhist. I actually find myself answering now, I'm a curious. I'm a <laughs> curious. I am really curious about things like reality and mind. So what I might recommend for you is be really inquisitive in a playful way, curious about what is this thing called anxiety? Really, mm -hmm. don't try to go in there with your over, because you're a very smart person, I know you. Don't go in there <laughs> with your analytic, classifying, super sharp mind. Go in there with a childlike disposition, like you're looking through a toy box, and just saying, gosh, what is this thing called anxiety? Go directly into it. Takes a little bit of courage, but you have that courage. Go into it, look at it, Feel it fully. Where is it? Where am I feeling it? Am I feeling it in my stomach? How interesting. Am I feeling it over here? How interesting. Explore it. This is a type of mm -hmm. investigation. This is a Vipassana practice. And Stephanie, just by doing that, these, these type of investigation practices, literally staying with the sensation and notice the tendency, you know, you'll do these hiccups of commentary, right? Oh, I'm not doing it right. Oh, I'm not doing it right. Oh, anxiety comes back in. On one level, that's actually kind of cool because then it will feel the anxiety. It will fuel it, that you, the anxiety that you want to explore. So that's actually, <laughs> that's actually okay. Go into it. Where am I feeling it? How does it feel? Stay with that. Notice the hiccup to come up and go blah, 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 blah. Maybe catch that. Go, oh, that's interesting. Don't judge yourself. And then return to like, where, you know, what's going on in here? And then what you might find it might be really interesting for you. So something like that. Thank you. Yeah, give it a crack. Yeah, and then get back that's to helpful. It, okay? 
Yeah. Yeah. It helps me a lot, I tell you. So nice to see you. Thanks for Good joining. Good to see you too. Okay, great. Um, our next hand raised is for Sarah Adams. Okay, Sarah, you have the audio. Okay, great. Thank you. Hi, Sarah. Um, just to follow up on what the last person was saying, I was also really thinking about how to be grounded in your body and how you can sort of maybe focus even on which chakra or energy area your anxiety is in and just kind of what you're talking about before with opening and expanding as opposed to maybe contracting. But I really don't know. <laughs> I just wanted to say um, yeah. uh, to turn it to lucid dreaming and okay. uh, how I uh, have had only about four in my life, but mm -hmm. I remember my uh, dreams often and i just uh signed up for your course uh this may with bob thurman doing oh, the whole uh retreat at menla online um which i'm really looking forward to thank you um i have a question though that i think is probably silly and very common that you probably get but i have this fear that if i lucid dream like am i gonna die <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's because uh, I've listened to some of your recordings about the winds and the bindies and how similar things happen when you're sleeping and when you die with uh, where bindies go. And so I'm nervous that if I do it wrong, <laughs> that I'm going to mess up. But I'm like, he probably wouldn't teach this if that was, you know, one of the side effects. So right. I just wanted to clarify sure. and maybe have a reassurance from you. Oh no, in that in that regard, oh my gosh, you're, it's beyond safe. Um, <laughs> really, hundred percent. But here's one question, playfully: it may be hazardous to your egoic health. It may be hazardous to your egoic health, um, depending on how far you go with these practices. You know, physiologically, um, like practically speaking, oh my gosh, I mean this this is beyond safe. It's like there's zero risk. Mm -hmm. uh, so don't worry about that. But playfully, when you go into the deeper domains of lucid dreaming, where it transforms into dream yoga, dream yoga is about self-transcendence. And so at that point, your ego may be in trouble. That may die. But actually, it doesn't even die because it doesn't exist. Um, right. You will see, you may actually see through it. And so here's the other thing, large, larger framework of this death principle altogether. Death only applies to the world of form. Um, and that's why when I, when I teach all the stuff on dimensions of identity and dimensions of being, there is in fact a part of you that is threatened by this virus or is threatened by any physical assault, absolutely, positively. And because we're still embodied beings, we have to pay homage to that. We can't dismiss it. We still wash our hands. We still do all the things we're supposed to do. But what these deeper diving practices do, lucid dreaming, dream yoga, or deep meditation, is they allow you to differentiate from exclusive identification with these superficial levels that are in fact threatened and transition your identity to these deeper dimensions, which are completely untouched by what's happening. This is one way to look at the entire spiritual path, which by the way, is just what happens in a concentrated form when we die. Death is just a wrathful form of liberation. So if we understand that, then really, if you're getting involved in this business, if you really look at the fine print, get your, get your spiritual lawyer to look at the contract you're signing here, 
you know, this whole path is just death and slow motion, transcendence and slow motion, but it's only the death of form. And by understanding that, the punchline of these Bardo teachings, which is, you know, talk about a benefit, is you fundamentally discover the death of death. Death at certain domains simply does not apply. Um, and this is why you know, I have, at the, at the most elevated levels, the levels that are actually deep within us, death has absolutely no meaning whatsoever. And this may seem like wild, woolly, spiritual rhetoric, but this is actually something that we can experience positively, very directly with these teachings. And if we do that, this is a game changer. I mean, th this is where you can live your life with a fearless gusto, because you realize there's a part of you that cannot, cannot be touched by anything that happens in the world of space and time. And then if it is from that dimension that then you can re-enter the world of space and time with utter fearlessness. And this is in fact what the great spiritual masters do. That's the space from which they live. And that's why they, they can act in these most unbelievable ways with utter fearlessness, because on one level, they know nothing can touch them. So that's just a little bit of an expansive riff on where these practices can take you. And, and, and the thing that I'll be doing with Bob Thurman, this is a, a, a where we're definitely gonna be going in that program. So we'll see you there. Okay, great, thank you. Thank you, love the prayer flags, by the way. Those are awesome. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Okay, maybe one or two more. I want to probably stop at 2.30. Okay, great. Um, the next hand raised is for Mary. And okay, Mary, you have the audio. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Mary. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thank you for doing this. I met oh. you on um, the tricycle that you just did the series nice. on the Bardo's teaching and they so much speak to me okay, uh, thank you. I appreciate them a lot and before I ask my question which is really kind of just a basic question I just want to say thank you to Sharon okay. and Stephanie because both of your questions really addressed a lot of what I'm feeling at times of reacting to other people's anger out in the community, reacting to my own anger and also my anxiety. Like I can be fine one day and the next day I can be very anxious. So um, your questions were really helpful. Super appropriate. And my question is, um, not so personal it's more logistical i everyone's talking about the class that you have on colorado shambhala oh the boulder shambhala center yeah mm -hmm. uh, yeah okay sorry um and i'm interested in taking the class but it's already started is okay. that is that like a live class like this or it is a live class like this, but they're all being recorded. I generally do not record things, um, but these are slightly unusual times. And so the, the, the sessions are being recorded. Um, so the, you only missed one, and it was kind of an introductory thing this Tuesday. So when you sign back up, and I just cleared this with the Shambhala Center this morning, saying, are you guys still taking registrations? Is it still cool? And they said, absolutely. So you just okay. listen to the session that you missed. And if you did the tricycle, course last week, you already have a good running start on it. Um, um, you haven't really missed that much since you already took that course. 
Okay. And as we continue, as you'll see, we're going to go um, quite a bit farther than what we did with TC. So you can definitely, definitely most welcome to come on board. Okay, awesome. That's good to know. Now, my other second part to that question is, is that there, Tricycle's also offering one that you did, I guess, for them. Yeah, is that different? Ago. Yeah, is that's that pretty, different? That's pretty, mm -hmm, it's pretty different. You know, here's the deal with these Bardo teachings. Um, they are massive. They are huge body of teachings. And so it's not, you know, because I'm doing all these little and big Bardo courses, um, th there is a tiny bit of repeat, of course, there has to be. But because the material is just so enormous, I mean, volumes and volumes of teachings, there, I can offer all these courses and, and virtually every single one of them has a tremendous amount of brand new original material. And so, um, yeah, there'll be a little bit of repeat, but there's a, even the one I did two years ago, which was a, a six week course, the one we're doing now, for instance, it's, it, again, it's completely adapted um, towards what's happening with the virus situation. So everything is kind of lens through this to make it just so applicable to what we're going through right now. So thank you okay. for asking and thanks for the, for, the, uh, for the plug. You know, I get a chance to sell my Kool-Aid lemonade stand without having to pitch it overtly. So thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> well, and the other part of that is, is that the reason, I mean, I'm doing this is personal obviously, but also I, I'm retired nurse practitioner. And I just got my great aha when you were talking, when I was listening to the Bardos through Tricycle, that where I've been heading is, is I want to go do volunteer work for oh, hospice. Yeah. And, and hospice is a big, is, is I've done hospice nursing. Most of my career has been helping with end of life stuff, yeah. but I feel like these teachings will help me become more prepared. Massive, massive. And it sounds like it doesn't really matter which one I take, they'd all be helpful. Is that correct? What, you mean the courses that I offer? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, of course, I'd say they're all fantastic, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, just briefly. So like, you know, the, the one I'm doing now in Boulder, very specifically adapted towards what's going on with the world situation, framed within the larger context of the Bardo, classic Bardo teachings. So like the one that there was previously mentioned, the one I'm doing with Rob Thurman, uh, this is part of a series I started last year where we devote one entire week, a whole week to each one of the Bardos. So this is part of an ongoing four year project that I'm doing that will be re repeated, a very deep dive systematic study practice of the entire Bardo literature. That's, that's a, a, an entire beast, um, even different from what we're doing here. So, Obviously, I would say, because I'm so passionate about this, that I think there's something um, to be gained from all of them. So I'm not sure where else to go with that without, um, you know, self-aggrandizing even further than I already am. <laughs> well, I guess I'm just trying. It's very helpful for what you're saying, because I'm just trying to find out or try to discern in myself which one would be best place for me to start. You know, I, would do the, I would do the one that's going on right now, honestly, the, the one in Boulder, yeah, because, yeah. It's, again, because it's, it's, it's specifically for what's happening in the world today. I designed, I redesigned it, tweaked it, completely redid it to put it in line with what's happening now. So I would, I would recommend that one, honestly. So thank you so uh, much for the Well, thank, thank you, Andrew, yeah. blessings. So maybe one more, Andy, because I, um, I wanted to go till 2.30 and then we can call it for today. Sure, and we do have a few writing questions. So 
Okay. Maybe I could send those to you after. And, um, I don't know. Yeah. So here's um, Anita. Anita, you're going to have the audio for your next question. Hello. Thank you. Hi, Drew. Can you hear Hi. me? Yeah, I can hear you. Um, listen, I was thinking that as this situation is so different from each person and is in the whole planet. For example, me myself, I feel sometimes a little guilty because I feel privileged. For me, this time is a privilege. I have more time to focus in what I want to learn and to practice it and to meditate longer. And it's like, you know, they gave me some time to do what I really want. Yeah. And then at the same time, there are people that are suffering so much. I don't know why I am in the part of the privileged. The only thing I can do for others now, because I just can't go out, it's right. sometimes some friends call me very anguish. I just listen. That's what I do. But I, what does it make that some people feel so privileged of me? I have the sun coming from my window. I have all the time to meditate, to read and all that. And some others are really feeling so bad yeah there's several ways to go with this question anita one is you know the, the kind of the big grand cosmological approach which i think i'm going to just mention so briefly and defer is the issue of karma and and really good karma but i don't want to go there i don't think that's super important i just want to say that's definitely one track anita what comes to mind for me is is simply a deep sense of appreciation and recognition for, in fact, the preciousness of your condition, your circumstance, and then to take full advantage of it, to realize that it's literally a breath away and that you, we all, we're all falling in the dark. We just don't know when we're going to hit the ground. And so what's called a precious human life in Buddhism is not just being bored as a human being. It's being born in, in situations like yours and ours, where we have this extraordinary luxury based on good karma, to really study and work with ourselves in this regard. And then so we, we acknowledge that, we realize it, and we do everything we possibly can to take advantage of it. Um, that's a precious human life. And then we do so all the while informed that we're doing this fundamentally so that we can be of benefit to others. And right now, yes, it may be a little bit limited because of where you are, but you're doing this, you're talking to people, you're, you're willing to put yourself out to um, reach out to others. And there are other ways to help. I mean, I know in, in, Den in Colorado where I'm at, every day throughout the day, ads come up, uh, not ads, but um, displays come up on the TV set that if you want to donate, if you want to help, this is the way you can do it. So I think if you look underneath the hood, you will find that there are in fact other ways that you can help. But I think, you know, maybe the take home message for me, just to reinstate, is if we really, in our bones, realize, and, and this is where things like the four reminders, the four thoughts that turn the mind, these active contemplations, if we truly realize in our bones just how fortunate we are, just how limited our lifespan is, then, as they say in the traditions, we would practice and study as if our hair was on fire. And that's really the exhortation here. That's the invitation. Use this as an opportunity to realign your life to what's really important, what really matters, devote yourself to that. And then you will in fact have lived a life that's worth living. So that's just my, my first impression on that, my friend. Um, and I think Andy, for the purposes, you know, I wanna to try to limit this to an hour and a half. 
those of you who have questions in line, um, if you can possibly, I'm not sure how quite we can do this for next week, we'll, we'll put you at the top of the list for next week. The questions that were came in in written form, Andy can definitely send me those. Mm -hmm. I can immediately slot those on the, on the very top of the list for next week and I will just start with those questions because I, I wanna try to entertain everybody, but um, I also think at a certain point, we probably ought to let this thing slide. So thank you so much for joining me. I, I really personally, I enjoy it. And um, wash your hands, do your practice, and we'll reconvene again next Thursday. We'll see where this goes. Um, but in the meantime, really do take care of yourselves and uh, all the best and we'll see you next week. Bye.